and uh, to a very special lecture indeed, given by one of our most distinguished uh, fellows, Professor Suhail Bushri, who's going to speak tonight on a subject which is very close to his heart, and yet surprisingly is uh, one that he hasn't really spoken of before at Temenos. It's the work of W.B. Yeats, and in particular the influences that Yeats drew upon from both the Indian world, which perhaps are quite well known, but also from the Arab world, which are less well known. Now, uh, Suhail is extremely well qualified to explore these influences. Uh, for those of you who don't know him that well, he's a prolific scholar. He studied literature in the Middle East and indeed at a very high level here in England. And he's used his extensive understanding and love of poetry to do marvelous things. Uh, he has for many years been the Director of Peace Studies at the University of Maryland, which is on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. In fact, he held the Khalil Gibran chair there, having founded it for many years. And he continues to do tremendous uh, work indeed, inspiring students from what is a vast university uh, in his course at the Center for International Development and Conflict Management. I had the, uh, the great honor of uh, being the guest of that center earlier this year. So I got to see at first hand not just the work that they do there, but also the, uh, the love and admiration and high esteem in which uh, Suhail is universally held by his young students who choose to come to his course. They're not put on it. Um, by his many former students who never forget what they've learned from him, and also, I must say, by his colleagues and by his supposed superiors at the university. Now, um, Suhail will describe himself as little more than a, a Lebanese camel driver. Uh, but I have it on very good authority from uh, the dean of his faculty that he's far from that. In fact, once you get to know him, you actually realize he's a very proficient Lebanese camel seller. Um, you have no chance against him if he wants something done. Um, in fact, you might as well give up objecting, according to the, uh, to the dean. He is a force of nature. Um, one of the projects which he uh, devised was the translation into Arabic of uh, selections of speeches and lectures by the patron of the Temenos Academy, His Royal Highness Prince of Wales. And uh, I had the great pleasure of being at an event, I think just before Christmas last year, in London at um, the Banqueting House on Whitehall, uh, where the Prince of Wales uh, attended. Always a very dangerous place for a Prince of Wales called Charles to attend, given that uh, Charles I spent his last day there. And um, he was there specifically to receive uh, translations done by Suhail into the Arabic of these lectures and speeches. And I would just like to quote the prince um, when he spoke about Suhail because it's worth hearing. He said that it was a great honor to have his speeches translated by somebody who understands the Lebanon so well and the great traditions in history. Uh, he is one of the great treasures we have in today's world. And I can assure you that those words were extremely heartfelt and well-meant. Well, it's a, a very special uh, chance to hear Sahel speaking of literature tonight because that's what he does best of all, not just of Western literature, 
but also of uh, the great poetic seers of the Arab and uh, Persian worlds, both in their English translation and in their um, beautiful original Arabic. I work a lot in the world of music, and it's always a great pleasure to hear Suhail speaking literature in Arabic, because it really is tremendously musical. But he's here to talk about um, reference to the poet W.B. Yeats and his understanding of the poetic inspiration. Whereas the modern materialist mindset is dominated by the view that knowledge is acquired by gathering and organizing information gleaned from the external world, we have to remember that Yeats believed that knowledge is gained by extending the frontiers and changing perception of mind itself. The imaginative in contrast to the uh, purely reductive and scientific. And in this way, Yeats followed the path of spiritual enlightenment, studying the perennial philosophy, the principles that um, Thomas Taylor, Blake's friend of a time, described as being coeval with the universe itself. Well, having heard and talked with Suhail over many hours on these matters, I can assure you that he follows that same important spiritual path and also understands profoundly the impact, the effort, and the effect of, um, of that important truth that the spiritual is the universal basis of life. And of course, this was the view of our founder, Kathleen Rain, um, and it's no wonder, therefore, that they both grew uh, together and gained a great deal from uh, their mutual understanding. Kathleen was herself a formidable force of nature. She had just as much energy as Suhail, um, and uh, I'm sure that uh, in spirit she's here tonight waiting to hear what uh, Suhail has to say. So, Suhail, your audience awaits. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Professor Bushri. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm really embarrassed by this introduction, and I hope I'll live up to it. But uh, I think these things should be said after the lecture, not before. So, but uh, I would like to thank uh, Tom Durham, who is going to sing, real singing, because we're talking about singing as well. Uh, he's going to read the poetry and some of the passages in his beautiful uh, voice. I must uh, first of all apologize if I have misled you by saying India, Japan, Arabia. Well, tonight it will be only India, and I'll tell you why. This is a work in progress. What I've done is jotted some material down, which would most probably be revised. Uh, the, the original idea is that this would be a book of about 200 pages. It deals with the influence of India, of Japan, and of Arabia. For Japan was form for Yates. Arabia was passion. Ireland was the spirit. And so these three come. But today we're going to Ireland and India, sorry, is the spirit. And we're going to deal with the spirit today. And I hope you'll forgive me. And do forgive me as well. I don't assume to know Sanskrit, and I'm not Indian in any way. And most probably it is a foolhardy affair for anybody to venture into anybody else's culture. But 
because we live in a time when we have to understand each other, it is necessary to do so, and Yeats believed in that, then we have to come together, and we have to speak each other's languages, and we have to speak each other's cultures, because unless we do this, there'll be no hope. Religion was very important, but it wasn't religion that fascinated Yeats. It was the spirit of religion. And this is a big difference between the two, between spirituality and being religious. You can be religious, but not spiritual. But you cannot be spiritual without having some kind of religious affiliation or following a certain path. Um, forgive the pronunciation. And uh, one thing from Yeats, he said, I have always considered myself a voice of what I believe to be a greater renaissance the revolt of the soul against the intellect, now beginning in the world. That's our time, the revolt of the soul against the intellect. And I think I always tell my students, well, allow me to also follow in the footsteps of Yeats and be the revolt of the soul against the intellect. For a university professor, such a statement is rather dangerous, but I'm happy to make it. When Yeats wrote, most of us who are writing books in Ireland today have some kind of a spiritual philosophy. He was, of course, making a remark particularly relevant to himself. For Yeats, that personal philosophy underwent continuous formulation and reformulation throughout his life. In the process, he drew not only on the culture and philosophies of his native Ireland, although Ireland always remained the focal point on which other influences converged, but ranged widely through the cultural heritage of other nations for inspiration and ideas. As F.A.C. Wilson has aptly observed, Yeats accepted the Christian revelation, but he could not accept it as exclusive. The Upanishads, Buddhism, the religion of Platonism, the Jewish Kabbalah, and the Neoplatonic tradition of alchemy of all of which he made himself a student, seemed to him also meaningful and valid, and he finished with a philosophy that would enable him to connect all these traditions and to concur with Blake's maxim that all religions are one. As he was entering the world of the 20th century, Yeats' statement about his religious beliefs was the most honest and open confession by any of the major poets of his time, and also the clearest statement on the spiritual vacuum that they experienced. I was unlike others of my generation in one thing only. I am very religious, and deprived by Huxley and Tyndall, whom I detested, of the simple-minded religion of my childhood, I had made a new religion almost an infallible church of poetic tradition, of a fardel of stories and of personages and of emotions, inseparable from their first expression, passed on from generation to generation by poets and painters, with some help from philosophers and theologians. I wished for a world where I could discover this tradition perpetually. That Yeats should have turned to the East in his search for a personal philosophy is hardly surprising. 
living at the end of a period that had opened up the East Europe in a way unparalleled since the decline of Venice as a sea power, the retreat of the Moors from Sicily in Spain, and writing at the end of an age of romanticism that had itself turned to the East, his interest in cultures, so much more long-standing than his own, was almost inevitable. Ever since the British had become a colonial power in India, there had been a marked interest in the East and its religions, and a movement to bring its literary classics to attention of the continental and English-speaking readers and literati. I would like to make a statement here. I really admire what the British Empire has done for the world. I, I, I'm one of those people who says, I love my colonial masters. Really. They collected the history, they translated the literature, the classics. It was an enrichment beyond words. And we always think of the negative, but we always also forget the positive. So, for those of you who ever had anything to do with British Empire, thank you. Ever since the British had become a colonial power in India, there had been a marked interest in the East and its religions, and a movement to bring its literary classics to the attention of the continental and speaking uh, readers and literati. The Arabian Nights had been available to English readers since the beginning of the 18th century, and the writings and researches of Sir William Jones publicized the treasures of classical India and ancient Arabia throughout the literary circles where English was the medium of civilized expression. The works of those romantics in whose Lee Yeats was writing, Shelley, Byron, Southey, and if you would like to include, I won't quarrel over that, Tennyson and Browning, among others, show the influence of Arabic and Persian poetry. The Arabian Nights and the Indian Sanskrit classics in Yeats's own lifetime, the influence had spread to English music, a trend which is epitomized in the works of Holst. Two of the most formative influences on Victorian literature, Thomas Carlyle and Matthew Arnold, had moreover imbibed the new spirit of the meeting of East and West from the European movement, which was probably most influential in bringing Oriental modes of thought to the West. The German poets and philosophers, in reaction to the Aufklarung, also known as the Age of Enlightenment, Goethe was a profoundly influential figure for Carlyle and Arnold, the universal genius who, inspired by the Persian poet Hafiz, that's Goethe, had announced at the beginning of the 19th century the gospel of cultural universalism. God's very own, the Orient. God's very own, the Occident. The Northland and the Southern Land rest in the quiet of his hand. During the late 1820s and early 1830s, in introducing German literature and ideas to Britain, Carlyle had celebrated the German cultural renaissance as a sign of a coming new era. German transcendentalism was, of course, steeped in the philosophy of India. August Schlegel, for one, had prompted it through his translation of the Sanskrit classics. However, it was the Arabian influence, 
which stirred Carlyle to, to deliver his epoch-making lecture on the Prophet Muhammad in 1840. His favorable approach to the Near East was repeated by Arnold in his appreciation, appreciative writings on Islam, such as the Persian Passion Play. Carlyle and Arnold, both perceiving the emptiness of the Western secular society, which has been overcome by materialism, looked back to past eras of faith, Carlyle to the Middle Ages and the Islamic world, Arnold to the East, which in the day of a decaying classical West had announced a new millennium. The East bowed low before the blast in patient, deep disdain. She let the legions thunder past and plunged in thought again. So well, she mused, a morning broke across her spirit grey, a conquering newborn joy awoke and filled her life with day. I'm reminded of Arnold's famous two lines which are so indicative of the whole period. He said, I'm wandering between two worlds, one dead, the other powerless to be born. And yet she was aware of that, why it was power. We, we live in this time, really. Why powerless to be born? It lacks the spirit. It lacks that spiritual power that is needed to bring about the birth of a new civilization. This is what's wrong with globalization today. The great Victorians took very little of substance from Eastern sources in order to found a new spiritual philosophy that might fill the spiritual gap left by a materialist, scientific, and secular age. Carlyle, Arnold, and Ruskin, each in their own way, were endeavoring to rediscover the ethical motivation of a Christianity shorn of dogma. It was not until 1893, at the first session of the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago, that Vivekananda, in Professor Zainer's words, was for the first time able to present Hinduism to the world as a universal faith. Western society, for well over two centuries, missionary to the world with its developing technological know-how and its how ethnic version and its own ethnic version of Christianity was not to be susceptible to direct missionary contact from the East. The roles had changed and it is in this context that we should view Yeats's own contact with figures like Chaturji, Tagore, Madame Blavatsky and Sherry Proet Suami. Yeats's interest in the East started early in his career. His first contact with Eastern literature was as early as 1884, when he and his fellow students at the Metropolitan School of Art in Dublin, A.E., that's George Russell, and Charles Johnston, began reading the sacred literature of India. Although Yeats had access to and read many works dealing with Eastern subjects, as varied as religion, linguistics, literature, and history, his reading was generally confined to the Indian sacred literature. Some Indian poetry and plays, some Persian and Arabic poetry and tales, as well as some Chinese and Japanese poetry and drama. In turning to the East as a source of the occult and the mystical, which he could assimilate into a personal creed, adapting the symbols and ideas 
that he discovered to his own metaphysic, he was continuing the tradition of romanticism. Yeats's logic in turning to the East as a source of metaphysics lay with his conception that it was a place where the fundamental truths of life were still accessible. The belief that he could integrate them into his metaphysic with the traditions and the culture of his native Ireland was reinforced for him by the theory of Sir John Rees, published in 1888, which suggested that the original home of the Celts, sometimes it's pronounced Celts, we won't quarrel over that because nobody's aware of what it is, the Celts, as well as the other Indo-European tribes was in Arabia. So the source, as he began to understand it, it came there from there. By 1885, Yeats had read Max Muller's series, The Sacred Books of the East, which included the Buddhist Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Upanishads. With George Russell, a confirmed mystic, and with Charles Johnson, they continued this study. Russell was regularly practicing a form of meditation at this time, which Yeats also adopted and continued for many years, claiming that he had learned it from McGregor Mathers. Yeats described it as a form of meditation that has perhaps been the intellectual chief influence on my life up to perhaps my 40th year. It's very interesting, Yeats, after the age of 40, he began to, th to think of himself as an old man. And I wonder at 82 what I should say. <laughs> Their interest in Eastern philosophy prompted Johnston and Yeats to found the Dublin Hermetic Society in 1885 with, purpose, uh, with the purpose of studying mysticism, particularly that of Eastern and Indian religions. And it was in this year that Yeats first made direct contact with the East. Mohini Chaturji, the young Indian mystic, was making a visit to Dublin, having been sent there by Helena Blavatsky, the controversial founder of the Theosophical Society, then resident in London. There he lectured on Vedantic thought and discussed the concepts of reincarnation and the pantheistic God as a divine over-self who could be known through turning within oneself in contemplation. Essentially, Chaturji emphasized that the only life of real value was the one of mystical contemplation, or to use Yeats's expression, reverie. This is a special Yeats word. It is also related to revelation. So these are all connected and to be understood in the same sense of relationship, uh, the linguistic relationship. The daily world was an illusion because of temporary or temporal nature and action was to be shunned. Yeats's poetry over the next few years shows the influence of Indian culture and of Chaturzi's teachings and it was in all probability under the influence of Chaturzi that Yeats read Sanskrit drama. When lecturing to Indian students in Oxford in 1919, Yeats remarked that at one period of his literary career, he had tried to steep himself in translations of the Sanskrit plays and to assimilate in his writing whatever seemed valuable and congenial. 
In musada, which is really, I think, an Arabic word, musada, meaning the one who is happy or of good fortune, and it's a female character. In Musada, which published June 1886, there are two significant influences, one Arabian, the other Indian. And it is this latter which is seen in the reference of the sultry palaces of Ind and the symbolic lotus flower. Ah, now I'm eastern-hearted once again. And while they gather round my beckoning arms, I'll sing the songs the dusky lovers sing, wandering in sultry palaces of Ind, a lotus in their hands. Buchan, the critic Buchan, has suggested the possibility that Keats may have read Kalidasa's Sakuntala, as in the Sanskrit play, one lover fans the other with a lotus flower. If in Musada the connection is tenuous, a stronger case can be made for Kalidasa's influence in Anushuya and Vijaya, one of a series of Indian poems written between 1886 and 1887. In this poem, Yeats apparently adapted phrases from the translation of Second Twala by Monier Williams, published in 1853, where Anashuya is the name of a character in the play. Yet even in Yeats's poem, as Buchan has shown, the Indian elements are still distorted by what he claims is westernized idealization of the East. There is sometimes an idealization on the part of some people. Oh, you are very spiritual people. Well, I can assure you that we can be very materialistic people too. So there is, uh, this is not to, to be given to one people or the other. It was yet the influence of Chatterjee's teachings on Yeats's thinking rather than his reading up to then that made the greatest impact. In The Seeker, published in September 1885, The Knight, the seeker of the, of the title, has been searching for an esoteric wisdom through many lands and through the East. Where spice isles nestle on the star-trod seas and by the weedy marge of Asian rivers rolling on in light. What the old knight is seeking is esoteric and ascetic enlightenment, the ultimate attainment of life, according to Mohini Chatterjee, who made Yeats feel that all action and all words that lead to action were a little vulgar, vulgar a little trivial. Yet neither the knight who who imagined wisdom as a beautiful woman, nor Yeats could accept that the renunciation of beauty as perceived by the senses should lead necessary to self-knowledge. Still, Chatterjee's philosophy of non-action appears again in another of poems of Yeats's 1885 poems, The Song of the Happy Shepherd. Then no wise worship dusty deeds, nor seek, for this is also sooth, to hunger fiercely after truth, lest all thy toiling only breeds new dreams, new dreams. There is no truth saving in thine own heart. Yet his ultimate adaptation of Chatterjee's idea that life is fundamentally an interior quest appears in the shadowy waters. 
this was first a poem and then it was turned into a play later. Yes, his Irish background and his Indian interests are directly combined in the poem. The poem itself is set against a backdrop of Celtic mythology and concerns the quest of an island paradise in the West. But the ideas within it are essentially Indian. The hero Fogel, voyaging westward, is seeking an ultimate knowledge of love, which is metaphysical rather than physical in nature. And not even Dectora, the heroine of the play, can, or the poem, can fulfill his dream. Whether the poem is one of Celtic twilight or Indian influence is a moot point, but it does contain Indian symbols. The three dogs of, on Fogel's sail probably represent the three gunas. Furthermore, Fogel's search, based on the assumption that his present life is less valuable than that which can be found in some unknown paradise in the West, is basically a variation of the Vedantic idea that life is an illusion of Maya. The shadowy waters represents the most complex assimilation of Chatterjee's philosophy in Yeats's work. The Indian poems most obviously show the assimilation of Indian images. They were originally intended to be part of a collection, the book of Kauri, the Indian, and show the influence of other Indian concepts that Chatterjee had discussed in Dublin. The Indian upon God presents the concept of God in the Rig Veda. In the poem, each animal and man sees God in his own form. For the roebuck, God is... The stamper of the skies. He is a gentle roebuck, for how else, I pray, could he conceive a thing so sad and soft, a gentle thing like me? Both the Bhagavad Gita and the Rig Veda present God or the divine consciousness as a unique entity which has many forms of expression and which may be perceived variously and with equal validity. And it is this concept that Yeats had utilized for his own poetry. Kanva on himself, the poem Kanva on himself, deals with the concept of reincarnation and approximates to the words that Yeats heard directly from Chatterjee. Yeats said, Somebody asked him, Mahini Chatterjee, if we should pray. But even prayer was too full of hope, of desire, of life, to have any part in that acquiescence that was his beginning of wisdom. And he answered that one should say before sleeping, I have lived many lives, I have been a slave and a prince. Many a beloved has sat upon my knees, and I have sat upon the knees of many a beloved. Everything that has been shall be again. In Yeats's poem, this became... Now wherefore hast thou tears innumerous? Hast thou not known all sorrow and delight, wandering of yore in forests rumorous, beneath the flaming eyeballs of the night? And as a slave, been wakeful in the halls of rajas and maharajas beyond number, Hast thou not ruled among the gilded walls? Hast thou not known a Raja's dreamless slumber? Hast thou not sat of yore upon the knees of myriads of beloveds, 
and on thine have not a myriad swayed below strange trees in other lives. By the 1890s, Yeats had absorbed the powerful influence of Chatterjee into his other interests. Sir John Rees's lectures, which had shown Yeats a potential connection between the East and the Irish, also suggested that the ancient Irish believed in reincarnation and transmigration of souls, while the Irish concept of reincarnation was not exactly that of the Hindu, Yeats saw it, its possibilities for his Celtic poem, Fergus and the Druid. Indeed, a later Celtic poem, he thinks of his past greatness when a part of the constellation of heaven similarly lists past lives. The gradual absorption of Indian teaching into the Celtic framework is evident in his famous poem, The Wanderings of Oshin, published in 1889. The saga story is a straightforward adventure tale of Oshin's voyage and his sojourn on three fairy islands. Yeats has added to the story the notion that Oshin is seeking something better than that offered in the world of mortals. Even though the result appears Celtic rather than Indian, this idea of the quest for an ideal life and self-realization has echoes of Yeats's first reaction to Chaturjee to and to Indian thought. Although the poem appears Celtic to the reader, Yeats suggested in a letter to Catherine Tynan that it contained hidden symbols which no one would recognize but himself. The critic Goha is among those who divide in the poem hidden symbolism, namely that the three islands, like the three dogs of Fogel's sail, represent the three gunas. The island of the living represents sattva, the island of victories represents rajas, and the island of fortune, tamas. The gunas are three basic characteristics which form any personality. They are the three aspects of fundamental matter, the source of all energy and creative power. Sattva, which is equated with harmony and wisdom, intellectual sensitivity and the refinement of self. Rajas, equated with the active or warrior self with passion. And Tamas, equated with darkness, inertia and lethargic self. <coughs> Ultimately, Oshin prefers his real world of the vigorous Finians, even though he finds they are long dead and, the further, and further rejects Sir Patrick's suggestions of prayer and fasting. As Goha comments, Yeats could not himself accept the extreme asceticism of Vedantic philosophy as propounded by Chatterjee. This was quite a shift from the original attitude in quatrains and aphorisms. Long thou for nothing, neither sad nor gay. Long thou for nothing, neither night nor day. Not even, I long to see thy longing over to the ever-longing and mournful spirit, say. The ghosts went by me with their lips apart from death's late languor as these lines I read on Brahma's gateway. They within have fed the soul upon the ashes of the heart. Yeats was not yet ready 
to reduce his heart to ash in the ascetic kern. Chatterjee had taught after the teaching of Sankara, an 8th century Indian thinker, that in order to free oneself from cycles of reincarnation, one must free oneself from all desires associated with this world. Oshin rejects, and my friend Tom corrected me, he said, resents. I agree. I, 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 I bow to your <laughs> superior wisdom. But now, yes. But now two things devour my life, the things that most of all I hate, fasting and prayers. <laughs> Although the detachment from life which Chatterjee advocated seemed to have a certain amount of appeal for the young poet, it's clear that as the Indian ideas became more absorbed into the Celtic framework, Yeats felt himself unable to subscribe to a central tenet of Chatterjee's philosophy, that the way to a personal fulfillment or self-realization lies in a total rejection of action. After the first flush of enthusiasm, action becomes married to a quest for a mystical fulfillment. The knight in the seeker is, after all, seeking an ocean has to put to sea. In later years, Yeats himself rejected many of his early Indian-influenced works. The Indian cycle of poems was never finished, and those that were extant were not published. In 1887, two years before the publication of The Wandering of Oshin, the Yeats family moved to London, which brought Yeats into contact with Helena Blavatsky. He joined the Theosophical Society that same year, and in 1888 became a member of the esoteric section of the society, which focused its attention to psychic experiments. Helena Blavatsky had spent a number of years in India, where she had become familiar with Hindu philosophy in its various expressions, yogic, Vedantic, and tantric. She had traveled widely through other countries of the East, and through the Amer Americas, absorbing a truly phenomenal amount of information about folk customs, belief, superstitions, and religious practices. These she amalgamated into two books, Isis Unveiled, published in 1887, and The Secret Doctrine, published in 1888, which remain, regardless of scholarly opinion, and I can assure you, scholarly opinion can be wrong more than is expected. So regardless of what we say about her work, it, her work is a remarkable compendium of occult symbols, magic rites, religious thought, on becoming an intimate of Helen Blavatsky and visiting her regularly, Yeats became familiar with her works, although it is unlikely that he read them from cover to cover. Inevitably, this new influence became to show in his work. Yeats adapted some of the idea, ideas he found in her books to his own indigenous cult of Celtic mysteries, while others of Indian origin appeared in a vision and in his later poetry. His most notable borrowing was the concept of historical cycles, of alternating 
light and dark, which symbolized the constructive and destructive phases of creation. The alteration of these cycles represented in Indian thought the exhalation and inhalation of Brahma, the universal creative consciousness. His concept of reincarnation, that the soul has to go through necessary cycles before purification, can be found in the works of Helena Blavatsky, even his code name in the Golden Dawn, D-E-D-I, Demon Esdius Inversus, was a section heading in the secret doctrine and later in Yeats's vision. Similarly, the concept of unity of being, and here we come to the most important concept in whole in Yeats's spiritual philosophy. This unity of being, a central theme in Yeats's later poetry, and in a vision, was derived from a concept of Helena Blavatsky's, the idea of self and anti-self. This would be more accurately described in Indian thought as the idea of self and self with a capital S, the, that is, the universal self. And while Yeats' concept differed from the Indian in some respects, the similarities are apparent. In the subjective system of India, the individual self has a basic identity with the absolute self. And yoga, which Yeats came to know with the association with the Theosophical Society, maintains that it is within man's power to attain unity with the absolute self. Personality in the Indian system is regarded as a mask, as if human beings are actors on the stage of life, using the masks of their personalities to hide their real faces, namely absolute self. This concept of unity of being uh, is not only it is the Sufi tradition has already the variations here, but the concept is the same, that there is a unity, a holistic unity, that has us all involved in it. Animals, natures, the sky, the moon, the light, everything. That's part of the creation of the Almighty. And so this unity of being is really a unity of existence, as well spiritual, and material. At least now, when we look back, we can understand what the meaning of this unity is. Now, I think, uh, this is my own personal opinion, this is not based on any, uh, anything else, really. I believe that this concept of globalization, which we have not yet in any way given its form or shape, there is only one kind of globalization, that's a market, ladies and gentlemen, nothing else. And that's controlled by greed, nothing else. And the market has neither a brain, nor a heart, nor a soul. So Yeats was ahead of his time. He may not have expressed it in the way that we understand it today, but I'm sure that this unity that we need to create is between us as individuals. First of all, between me and myself, number one. Then between me and my friend Tom. Then between me and you. Then between me and my enemy, of course. And how can we reconcile all these differences to bring about a unity of conscience? That is the key. Yeats' second direct contact with India took place in 1912 when he met 
the Bengali poet Rabindranath Tagore. Tagore had been educated in England, was of an upper class background, and writing in Bengali was already a successful poet in his own country. He had come to England for a personal visit and had brought with him some translations of his poems. These translations were passed on in manuscript to Yeats, who reacted enthusiastically. These prose translations from Rabindranath Tagore have stirred my blood as nothing has for years. These lyrics display in their thought a world I have dreamed of all my life long. He was impressed by the deep emotion of Tagore's poetry, in which nature and God could exist side by side. He saw none of the basic abstractions of Mohini Chatterjee's thought. His initial enthusiasm led him to help Tagore prepare an edition of translations to which he wrote the introduction. And the selections were published as Jitin Jali in 1912. The following year, he arranged a production of Tagore's The King of the Dark Chamber in London and of the post office at the Abbey Theatre. In addition, his enthusiasm for Tagore was bolstered by their similar views on nationalism. Now, there's various assessment of Yeats as a nationalist poet. But uh, Yeats learned his first lessons of nationalism in Paris at the hand of one of the great figures of Irish nationalism, John O'Leary. And this is what John O'Leary said to Yeats. He said, yes, you want to be a nationalist, you want to serve Ireland. But remember, there are certain things a gentleman cannot do to save a nation. Remarkable. Don't we need this today in politics as well? There's certain things, yeah. And uh, I think that uh, I must really, really uh, express my great admiration uh, for the uh, magnificent way in which Her Majesty the Queen visited Ireland and the great statement that she made. It was a remarkable, remarkable statement indeed. I think those of you who come from Britain here should really be very proud of your royal family. I wish everyone else had such leadership. And what she said was remarkable. She said, well, perhaps things could have been done in a different way. Yes. And indeed, this is something that uh, Yeats believed. It. Yes, he wrote 1916. It was a great nationalist. <laughs> uh, but there is one line there in which the poem immediately is raised to a great epic poem and universal poem when he praising the martyrs who died in the post office saying all that he had to say about the Irish and so on had one line he said was this all necessary remarkable really although yes was helpful to Tagore when Tagore was the latest discovery of literary circles Yeats's enthusiasm quickly cooled when he thought Tagore was interested in becoming an Indian poet publishing in English. And I think when Tagore started learning grammar and wanting to improve his style, Yeats was terribly disappointed. He says, be yourself, there's no need to change. Uh, Yeats discovered that Tagore's sadhana was full of those very abstractions he was trying to avoid. 
I have fed upon the philosophy of the Upanishads all my life. But there is an aspect of Tagore's mysticism that I dislike. I find an absence of tragedy in Indian poetry. Furthermore, if Yeats's inability, inability to equate non-action with his metaphysic led him to become dischanted with Chatterjee, a similar mistrust of Tagore's avoidance of sexuality disturbed him. Though Tagore briefly held Yeats's imagination during the years 1912-1914, he showed very little interest in the Bengali poet after the first enthusiastic response had turned to disenchantment. Yeats's interest in Indian literature, however, had been revived, and he read a number of books on Indian drama and poetry. Yeats's third direct contact with Indian thought took place in London in 1931 on his meeting with Sherry Pruitt Suwami. He was pleasantly surprised to find that Sherry Pruitt, unlike other Eastern philosophers, found a place for man's physical being in his philosophy. The meeting brought to the fore those ideas which Yeats had long been formulating, the parallels between Ireland and the Far East. Had not the Islamic civilization in the Near East, Buddha's teachings in India, and the monastic culture of newly Christian Ireland reached poetic and religious heights at the same period, the 7th to the 10th century. Just as the arrival of Christianity had created a cultural upsurge in Ireland, so the arrival of Islam in Arabia and Buddhism in India had caused a renaissance in those countries. In each place, a civilization based on pagan culture had been reformed into an amalgam of great vitality. Yeats felt that he had found in Shri Pruit Swami that part of India, of, in, of the Indian tradition, which confirmed his own philosophies. He had come to equate unmodified traditional Hinduism with early Christian Irishry, and even compared Sri Purohit with his faith in miracles and the supernatural to the ancient Irish St. Kellach. Yes, urged the Swami to write his autobiography, feeling that the West had ceased to have any personal contact with mystical experience and that the Suwami could best teach the West by relating his own experience rather than recounting the abstractions that Yeats had encountered in Tagore and Chatterjee. For the Suwami, as Yeats wrote in his introduction to the autobiography, the world was part of the splendor of the that divine being that is, man's physical being for which Yeats had been trying to find a place. While the influence of Sherry Pruitt on Yeats's poetry can be found in supernatural songs, in the poems Lapis Lazuli, those images, the statues, the man and the echo, or under Bonbon, the most interesting result of Yeats's association with the Swami was the joint effort in translating and editing the ten principal Upanishads. The result of which appeared in 1937. Yeats had read several other versions of the Upanishads and the version the two produced was hardly a scholarly translation. The structure is heavily imprinted 
with Yeats's own stylistic idiosyncrasies. However, for the non-purist, the translation still makes inspiring reading. Yeats wished to create a version of the Upanishads which would not be, and I, I love this statement because it applies to a lot of writing nowadays, not, not be a muddied muffle of distortion that froze belief. In his preface to the book, he comments that while he was no expert in Indian philosophy, he had always wished to see a translation of the Upanishads that was not full of Latinized words, hyphenated words, polyglot phrases, sedentary distortions of unnatural English. In undertaking the work, Yeats felt a poetical and philosophical satisfaction. Sri Purohit Swami and I offer to some young man seeking, like Shakespeare, Dante, Milton, vast sentiments and generalizations, the oldest philosophical compositions of the world. Compositions, not writings, for they were sung long before they were written down. Yes, also wrote two introductory essays with Siri Pruitt. The first was The Holy Mountain, The Story of Pilgrimage to Lake Manas, and of Initiation on Mount Kailas in Tibet by uh, an, an Indian author, Sheri Hamsa, translated from the Marathi by Sheri Pruitsuwami, which was published by Faber and Faber in 1934. The second was a short essay, the Mandukya Upanishad, which appeared in the Criterion in 1935. In this essay, Yes discusses the stages of vision or illumination connected with the mantra Um, AUM, a variety of yogi technical terms and the general concept of union with God. Now, this sexual is a very difficult thing to explain. We live in an age, it's unfortunate that even sex has lost its significance and we don't know how to deal with it. And uh, it's a, it's a sex-obsessed age, really. What Yeats means by sex here means that act of love, which is divine in nature. Make no mistake. Read Yeats, and this is what you will come to. This is the conclusion. Divine in nature, sanctified by God, the institution of which is marriage. Although Yeats was well-versed in yogi terminology and philosophy, his discussions with Sherry Pruitt were probably responsible for the alterations of the 13th cycle in the revised version of a vision. The concept of the 13th cycle as one of deliverance at either end of life is particularly Hindu. Though present in the first edition of a vision, Yeats's concept of the great year of thousands of years was basically similar to the Hindu cycle, which also has its climax at the full moon. Yeats could have drawn the ideas for his cycles as well as those on the life of the soul after death, from any or all of the multiple influences that were now affecting his work. Now this cycle, this renewal, uh, I as a member of the Baha'i faith believe in progressive revelation, that guidance from Almighty God never comes to an end, it continues. And I find this very similar to that concept of renewal of, first of all, spirituality, and uh, 
It is this relationship between essence and form. Yes, explain this in great detail. This relationship between essence and form is in, understood that the form changes, the essence remains one and the same. I think uh, I should stop and I'm going to ask my dear friend uh, Tom to uh, forgive me for stopping here because I think it's time we have to vacate here quickly. Uh, <coughs> yes, Mr. Chairman? Uh, what time do we, do we have to? Do? Yes, okay. I will ask uh, my friend Tom to read The Second Coming. It's a very, very spiritual, religious poem. And it's interesting because there are a number of things that strike me as being very significant. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. What Arnold was talking about, this wandering between two worlds, one dead, the other powerless to be born. Here, the same kind of sense is there. And how is this rebirth of a new civilization? And yet it says, the next civilization would not be born out of a woman's womb, but out of the mind of man. Meaning, still divine, but it will be both practical and spiritual. Because for a long time, we have separated the practicality and spirituality in our dealings, uh, with, even with the religion. And I think that one, I would like to end at this point. Of course, it was just notes that I shared with you. This is a work in progress. I hope this book will be finished, uh, and it is in three parts. This is a summary, a very, very brief summary of part one. Part two is about Japan and the form 
which is the play, really. And part three is about Arabia. This is very close to my heart. And uh, just one more point about what's going on in the Arab world, Arabia, and so on. Let me tell you, the media can have its day. And we are not all terrorists. It's my duty to say this, really. We have a great tradition of humanitarian tradition. And this is an early Arab poet in, in the desert. That's what he says. My heart is, I, I'm translating, um, editing really, Harold, uh, editing uh, the great critic Nicholson who translated this. My heart is, let me say the Arabic and I'll end with this. لقد صار قلبي قابلا كل صورة فمرعا لغزلان ودير لرهبان وبيت لأوثان وكعبة طائف وألواح تورات ومصحف قرآن أدين بدين الحب أنا توجهت ركائبه فالحب الديني وإيماني My heart is capable of every form A pasture for gazelles A monastery for monks An abode for idols He had made peace with the most bitter enemy of Islam a place where I can hold the idol and the votaries of the Kaaba. My heart holds the Holy Torah, the Jewish Bible, and the Quran. My faith and religion is love. Wherever it beckons me, I follow. I'm glad we heard the Arabic at the end there. <laughs> so, Hale, thank you very much indeed for um, a whole range of uh, different uh, uh, thoughts. Um, I think it was Yeats who, who predicted that it would take two or three generations from his to, uh, to see plainly obvious that uh, we don't just live in a mechanical world, um, that uh, the natural and the supernatural will be understood to have always been knitted together. And I think that's really what you were uh, getting at there. Lots of interesting ideas. I was very fascinated by the rejection of so much of Indian thought and then the acquisition of, uh, of the truth as you, as you described it. I wonder, though, we do have a little bit of time, uh, whether anybody has any particular questions. We even have a microphone so you can, uh, you can be heard. Anybody would like to ask any questions of uh, Suhail about the ideas and thoughts that he's presented this evening. Or corrections. Where, where do you think this spirit might come from, or its source, um, for this, not globalization, but for a new culture? Okay. This is my personal opinion, and it's not based on any... I believe in, let me say this, in 1938, Mahatma Gandhi said there will be no peace in the world unless there is peace among the religions. In 1993, the 100th anniversary of the World Parliament of World Religions, in Chicago, Hans Kung repeated the same thing, saying there'll be no peace in the world until there is peace amongst the religions. 
I think the challenging issue of today is really how can the religions come together, right? Accept the other, regardless of what differences there is. Concentrate on what unites us. There is much to unite us, really. I don't know. You know how Adam was created? Well, God breathed into him from his own soul. This is in the Bible, but it is also in the Quran. So, what's the difference, really? The, the essential, universal principles are one and the same. We differ. I fast here. You have a holiday there. You go to pilgrimage. I don't go to pilgrimage. I pray five times a day. You don't pray five This is This is peripheral. The essence is this noble human being, you know, who has to rise to the responsibilities. I believe that we have never challenged the leaders of religion to come together and say, look here, enough is enough. Let's come together and save this world and cooperate for God's sake. That's it. I believe this. So unless we have bring about this peace, it's impossible. And, and this brings me to reality, of course. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Sahel. Uh, <clears throat> I, I was very interested in your concept and your comments on globalization. And I agree entirely with what you said. However, I've come across something very interesting by Geiger, who wrote a book fairly recently, One World Ready or Not. Yeah. And he introduced a concept which is parallel to, uh, to globalization, and he calls planetization. And the idea of planetization is the relationship of people together rather than, as you said, the material aspects of globalization. And I, I, I just think that maybe this word is going to pick up in future because it, it tallies with everything we've, we've heard this evening. So I don't know how you feel about that. Well, <laughs> I think... Uh, accepting the other, recognizing the other, honoring the other. Come on. We live in a world with women still. Regardless of all this, you know, they say women are equal now, we are a... Come on. They are not. I tell you. And women, in my opinion, are superior to men. You know why? They have something called emotional intelligence. Men don't have that. They are mothers, you see? And therefore this quality, carry. <laughs> I was in the civil war in Lebanon. I saw what a mother can do to save her children. And I don't think any man can match that. And then, of course, and my wife is going to quarrel with me now when I go home, says, you should have never said that. I have learned, right, what divine love is for my wife. See? Women are still, they have to come into the picture. We have to recognize them. You see? And when you look at uh, world uh, gatherings and so on, you should always count how many women are there. I, th I believe, I believe in this and I, I, I think that it is very important that we should recognize that, really. Question? Yes. Uh, 
course, there's education. that uh, the International Monetary Fund has a woman at uh, its head for the first time. <laughs> Things are changing, perhaps. Um, uh, I just wanted to talk, uh, ask you about uh, the position of Maud Gahn in uh, Yeats's <laughs> life. You know, you talk about the divine love, but of course, the relationship with Maud Gahn was central to the anguish that he felt as a young man, the, this idea of the action as well. Uh, there was elements which drew him away from, from the world, but Maud Gahn was the person who brought him back into the world and forced him to get involved in national, nationalist politics. But there was something, uh, I think uh, they call it an astral union uh, or a type of pastoral union that, that uh, it, but the physical side was, was something that I think he he was interested in as well, you know Absolutely, and there's no I mean, he was a man after all I mean, and he was not a prophet and it was a question that was posed to Gibran uh, you wrote the prophet and you are a great poet uh, now do you practice what you preach? He said, listen, the prophet must practice what he preaches. I'm a poet. I'm not responsible. <laughs> and so, yes, of course he was. Maud Gahn, in one conversation with Maud Gahn, she, I think, made it very clear what was the relationship. She told him, no, I will not marry you because as long as you are suffering and you think you want this, you will write great poetry. Why should I deprive the world of that? And, and in fact, I think he, in the back of his mind, I think somewhere in one of my books I have mentioned this, he felt that he needed a, a woman whom he cannot get, you see, and feel this yearning that will inspire him to write great poetry. And he did write great love poetry, you see. And this, you know, the assessment of such relationships really differ. Yes, it was, it was at one point where he felt very strongly. And you could imagine, Yeats becomes a very likable person because of his weaknesses too. I mean, here is a man at his age, and then he can't get the mother, so he wants to marry the daughter. Isolde, <laughs> really. And of course, he wasn't serious about this either. But there you are. I, I don't know whether I've answered your question, really. I, I, th I think I have not. Later in his life, he became apparently street to have an operation to... Yes, yes. Um, yes. They call him um, the grand old man. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. I think he, he... Didn't he say somewhere, uh, Tom? An old man? Yeah, you go ahead. You know it. It's a poultry... Poultry thing, yes. Yes, yes. And... But that's not really about Mordegon. No, 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 himself, about himself, yes. an old man. At, the, at 40, he thought, well, perhaps it was his hope for rejuvenation, something of the sort. Uh, you must be Irish, sir. You are? I, I come from there where the tower is. Ah, oh, yeah, <laughs> in <Inter -God. laughs> Fine. Yeah. No, he, she was a nationalist figure, of course, very powerful. She had a charismatic personality. And... Uh, and then, of course, uh, I think she, yes, he, did he love her in the same way that he, he loved, uh, by the way, I met Mrs. Yates 
1960, I was visiting. I came to do my PhD here uh, on Yates. And then I went to Ireland, and, and it was very interesting. The Irish press, honestly, this is true, uh, published that a, an Arab has traveled all the way on camelback <laughs> to visit Mrs. Yates. And then so she, at that time, she was not uh, meeting anybody. And they, uh, they, when they told her, well, this is the chap, they said, oh, I'll see him. <laughs> and they advised me to, to go to her before 10 o'clock because she, at the end she was very, well, despondent and she drank a, a lot. So I arrived there and she says, oh, well, welcome, you're really interested. I said, well, I haven't traveled all this way as the press told you <laughs> on Camelback to arrive and, and do this. And she said, you're welcome. The library is yours. See what you want, take what you want. I spent a week to ten days in that library. It was if, and I got all my stuff on the Arabic, uh, and, and the notes he wrote in the margins were very, very remarkable notes. And they explained a lot of things, and uh, that's, that's why. But uh, uh, Mrs. Yates was his inspiration, I think, and she was much younger than he was, and I think he needed uh, the energy and the perseverance of a younger woman to cope with him. You know, he had this Steinach operation. This is a joke, of course, uh, but we won't go into that. But uh, he's, a, he's a remarkable man. And he fell in with this, this woman who came at the end of his life, and he thought that he was in love with her. Well, of course, he wasn't. He was just creating imagination of the poet. But the thing that lasts is the poetry itself, and the thing that matters is the poetry itself. And the thing that really stands out is his message that without a spiritual philosophy, none of us can survive. Did you sell her the camel? <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? You know, this, the statement you made, sir, what is water by Jenny, so reminds me of a verse in the Quran, and we have created out of water every living thing. It's, it's all interconnected, and it's all related. The universal, you see, ideas, the universal principles are one and the same. We differ only in form. 
that um, we're any further forward at all, though, because you quoted there, and Tom read it so beautifully, the, uh, the second coming. Yeah. The, the idea of the falcon, uh, the falcon not being able to hear the falcon, or the other way around. Mm -hmm. Is the gyre getting any closer now? Or did you have, do, do you have optimism in the way that Yeats seems to have yes. pessimism? Yes, and uh, I, I'm... How I'm, do you have optimism? Uh, the optimism is... There, of course, when he says, <laughs> what rough beast, there is a period of great suffering that will introduce us to the, to the, to the day when we will all become, in a way, able to help one another. Not necessarily, perhaps, united in every possible way, but united to serve the common good. Yes, I am, I am and of course, you know why Yeats was a bit alarmed? Here is a statement of his. He says, I'm sorry, I have to put this. <laughs> the world can never be the same. The stream has turned backwards, and generations and generations to come will have for their task not the widening of liberty, but recovery from its errors, the building of authority of a life sufficiently heroic to live without the opium dream. We are in that, yes, what authority, yes, of course, we need control. The, the, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Man has lost his connection with God. And therefore, he's turning and turning in this widening gyre. And then, of course, that, the tide that is, and then what a marvelous statement when he says, the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity. Now, who is making noise in the world today? The worst, <laughs> of course. The majority of people are peace-loving. So I, I am hopeful, yes, I, I, am, I, I cannot be but hopeful. See? What's it, Auden said, if you are not ready to, to live, then prepare to die. <laughs> so, but there you are. Marvelous. He claims to be ancient. I don't believe him at all. So, Hale, thank you very, very much indeed. Um, I hope you found that as inspiring as I did too. Lots of thoughts to take away. Thank you for coming.